นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะตะวะระหะตะวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะตะวะระหะตะวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะตะวะระหะตะวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามาสามีอาจารย์คุสโลอาจารย์ว่าที่มี to give some reflections on the Dhamma practice so I'll take my leave of the Sangha assembled Sangha to talk and also from all of you staying in the monastery yeah. I wish you all a good evening and blessings to you all uh, myself and three others have travelled here from Buddha Bodhivana Monastery in Melbourne, uh, Light Bodhinyana Rama Monastery here in Wellington. Um, our monastery is a branch monastery of Venerable Ajahn Chah. So we're like a family of uh, monasteries that stretches out from Thailand and around the world. And it's a testament to the wisdom. Uh, the great compassion, the Barami of Lumpochar, our teacher, that uh, both in his lifetime and since he passed away, also um, the number of students of his just keeps increasing. Uh, monks, nuns, lay men, lay women, all over Thailand, all over the world. Uh, this is following in the footsteps of the Buddha's own. Uh, wisdom and compassion, which has allowed us to be able to practice here the Dhamma and practice the Dhamma in this day and age, over two and a half thousand years since the Buddha lived. And again, uh, his great wisdom and compassion has meant that the, the teachings he gave has spread all around the world. Probably, very few parts of the world now where you couldn't access in some form or another. The words of the Buddha and the teachings. But Venerable Ajahn Chah, our teacher, although he's dead now, he uh, lived recently and was a living example of how to practice the Dhamma um, and the Vinaya. As Buddhist monastics, uh, we train in both. And in fact, Buddha, the word Buddhism wasn't in use uh, when the Buddha was teaching. Uh, he said he teaches dhamma and vinaya, and this is very much what you learn in a monastery. Say, coming, you come to stay here, whether it's just for a day or a few days or for longer periods. You're practicing both dhamma and vinaya together. Uh, just now, you took the eight precepts. You'd call that the practice of vinaya, uh, undertaking to refrain from. Various forms of unskillful behavior that cause suffering, harm to oneself, harm to others, and to promote simplicity of living and promote mindful living and promote the practice of meditation. 
Uh, so whether you're keeping the eight precepts or the ten precepts of a novice or the following the patimokkha, uh, the bhikkhu patimokkha, the rules that the monks keep. This is what we call the vinaya. And it's one aspect of our practice as Buddhists in learning to live in the world in a skillful way. How we interact with other people, uh, how we interact with the environment and society and also just how we maintain our own uh, self-discipline and uh, wholesome states of mind in daily life. The Buddhist path is very much geared to how to uh, live in this world without suffering or without creating any more suffering than we need. <laughs> We've probably all had some stress and suffering in our lives already and we have to admit some of that we can't avoid. Uh, just being born as a human being, unfortunately you're already bound for at least some stress, some suffering in your life. You can't avoid that, whoever you are, uh, wherever you are, whether you're born in New Zealand or in Asia or in Europe, in USA. Once you've been born in this world, you have a human body, you're going to have some dukkha. <laughs> That's just the way it is, unfortunately. Uh, human bodies do not bring us just pleasure, and happiness and convenience all the time. And they bring us some pleasure, some happiness, but they also, as part of the package, they bring us some challenges, difficulties, some pain, some unpleasant experiences with them. And our minds are the same. Um, it's not that our minds just bring us constant pleasure, happiness, all the time. They can also be a great source of stress as well. So the Buddhist teachings are all about this, how to understand this body and this mind that we've been born with in this world, how to understand it and how to liberate ourselves from suffering by understanding the nature of this body and mind and the nature of the world around us. This is what Ajahn Chah taught and Probably he taught it very well because so many people have benefited from his teachings, from his books, his tapes, and obviously from the living teachings he gave while he was alive. Um, he understood the body and the mind and the way of this world very well through his practice. He did study the Buddhist teachings um, to a certain extent, you know, he read like most of us, he read the scriptures, uh, contemplated them, but the majority of his knowledge and understanding came through actual practice, development of the mind through meditation, learning to live in a peaceful way, follow the precepts, and then contemplate, to contemplate truth. It's one of the things he emphasized over and over again as he taught is that we're, the way out of suffering is through developing your own wisdom and understanding through contemplation. Training your mind in that, cultivating that. It's our good fortune that we're born as human beings, we are born with great intelligence. It's one of the defining 
points or features of a human being is, is that we're intelligent but we don't always use our intelligence for ending suffering or stress sometimes we actually use our intelligence in ways that create more stress for ourselves and others um, so it's not given that having been born with intelligence we are necessarily going to follow a way of life that will bring us to the end of suffering for that we have to seek and search a little bit which is probably what's brought everyone here into this monastery whether it's today or over a period of time we're all seeking a way to live in a more peaceful way a way that's free from stress and suffering and we can direct our intelligence and our various uh, good qualities that we can develop as human beings we can direct them to that end and that's what the Buddhist teachings and particularly Ajahn Chah's teachings were helping us to do are helping us to do so it's a way of practice uh, to find a way out of suffering or liberation from suffering It's probably one thing that links us all together. There's probably many uh, different nationalities sitting here today. People from different backgrounds, um, not all local. Some of us are from overseas. But we all have that wish to be more peaceful, more happy as human beings. So it's a worthwhile pursuit. It's worthwhile putting some effort into Dhamma practice, uh, listening to the Dhamma, learning it and then actually trying to apply it in our daily lives. It's worthwhile because it brings very, very satisfying results, very peaceful, uh, good results for anyone who invests the time, the energy, the effort. Obviously in the world we live in nowadays there's so many different pursuits for people, there's so many options, uh, so many activities that we get involved with. Um, it's easy to see Dhamma as just one more thing. Sometimes people actually say that. Uh, Ajahn Kusalo probably has the same problem. He, you come here and he says, oh, we should do more meditation. And everyone says, oh, but my life is so busy already. I don't need more things to do. I don't need to be doing more meditation. That would just give me more trouble, more burdens. Um, that's part of our karma as human beings in a, living in this this day and age you might say uh, where there's a lot of material development in the world science technology has developed uh, different kinds of social relations and so on have developed to the point where life can seem quite busy complex and that in itself is part of the problem isn't it? it's part of the stress so when you do come to practice Dhamma, it's good to get a good attitude or a, a skillful attitude to it because if you are seeing it as just one more thing to do, then it's very much something you just pick up or put down or throw away, just like everything else in life, just like hobbies or even jobs nowadays. You know, very few people stick with one job all their life. We do a job of work for a while and then after a while we... For some reason or other we move on, maybe we're ambitious or we're fed up with the place and the people or we just 
find it there's something else we want to do so we move jobs all the time we move houses and residents all the time even nowadays we change partners all the time uh, someone told me recently now more people I'm from the UK so so told me more people in the UK now uh, don't stay with their partner for life than do the people most people who get married will the majority will end up divorcing their partner and so on that's the nature of the world we live in. We're constantly changing, looking around for other things, doing other things, moving around. And that attitude, we often bring that into Dhamma practice as well. So you, you can see it maybe you're given a meditation object to start with just to help you calm your mind down, develop more mindfulness, and you might do it for a little while. Then what? Hmm. Maybe you haven't experience much peace so you think mm, this isn't the right meditation object for me I'll try something else <laughs> so maybe the monk says oh do some breathing meditation Let's try that for three days and then oh this is not for me I'm thinking too much oh okay well I'll try some uh, metta meditation loving kindness meditation and do that for three days no this is not working thinking too much okay Try doing some straight vipassana, just contemplate everything is impermanence. And do that for three days. No, 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 still thinking too much. So even in our Dhamma practice we can jump around, move around, try different meditation objects, different postures. You know, some people, oh, I just sit, and I sit, but I never do any walking meditation. Some people, I just do walking meditation, but I never sit. Some people, I just do chanting, I can't do that meditation stuff. On and on it goes. We tend to pick and choose and move around and try many things, just like we do in other aspects of our life. So one thing Ajahn Chah emphasized, uh, I think any of us who have lived in Thailand, pick this up when you go to Thailand and you live in his monasteries there, one of the first things you're taught is to just be patient. It's a quality that you know is rapidly becoming extinct from modern existence because of the complexity of life, because of technology, because of various social values and changes in them. Uh, it's not cool to be patient anymore, is it? We like to be impatient, get what we want now. If we're not satisfied, move on, change, whatever. Um, Ajahn Chah wasn't like that. Ajahn Chah taught patience in so many ways, um, very direct ways. Sometimes he'd just say, be patient. Sometimes in indirect ways, he'd make you be patient without saying a word, but just through circumstances and teaching techniques, he could make people be patient. He'd make monks and nuns and lay people wait for many things. Um, we have a meeting tonight, like we've been here, what, an hour and a half already and probably I'll talk for a little while longer and then we'll finish. But Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah could talk Dhamma all night. And in those days when he was alive, if you left the talk before it was finished, you were considered very rude, disrespectful. If you're a monk, you feel you're considered like a monk who is no good. <laughs> So you're, you learn not to 
walk away, even to go to the toilet. You held, you held your bladder as long as you could. You held your posture as long as you could. If you are tired, sleepy, you had to hold on, stick through it. You learn. And Ajahn Chah could talk all night if he needed. <laughs> <laughs> or if he didn't talk all night, maybe he'd talk for a few hours and then he'd get someone else to carry on talking. <laughs> so what do you do? Ah, you have to practice patience. And the whole lifestyle was geared around that in different ways, learning to wait, learning to take your time, not to always rush here, rush there, not always to pick and choose. It's cultivating patience, but not as an end in itself, but as a tool, a useful tool, uh, both for developing meditation and the skills of meditation, and even deeper than that, as a lifetime skill, a life skill. Because with patience you gain a lot. Often you can gain a lot of peace very easily by just learning how to be more patient with your own restless mind, the desires, the attachments that we all experience. Learning to be patient in applying yourself to good things. Uh, so like here today people have been working very hard since the morning, doing dana, cooking food, preparing flowers, cleaning, preparing the place for tomorrow's Katina day. That took a lot of patience. You know, if you lose your patience, you just give up and walk away. Uh, so even just the practice of dana, sometimes we say it, don't we? we say, just dana, oh that's just dana. It's not meditation, <laughs> it's not real practice. But in the practice of dana, you learn many, many things. You learn how to be patient, apply yourself, Physically, often dana can be tiring. Mentally, you have to think what you have to do. You have to be mindful. You have to use effort and energy to complete various tasks, just as we've done today. And I've witnessed many of you doing many good things today. All of that required much patience and other great qualities. This is exactly what Ajahn Chah was encouraging us to do. You start with dana, learning how to share your time, how to look after where you live, the place, the monastery, your own home, wherever. Learning take, to take responsibility for your actions and develop skillful actions in daily life. Not only that, but also to develop patience with the precepts that we just took. And when you're in a monastery, you walk into a monastery you come into a peaceful environment, that's why probably many of you are here and tomorrow you'll see many, many people come. Why is that? Well, often they're attracted by the peace and the peaceful environment of the monastery and partly that's the physical setting. You have trees, mountains, nice buildings. But even more so, it's because the behaviour of people in a monastery is in line with precepts. People don't kill, they don't steal, they're not aggressive, they don't argue and fight. They're restrained in their sexual behaviour, abstain, a celibate while they're in a monastery. Uh, people don't get drunk or intoxicated in a monastery. So through their actions people live in a very peaceful, restrained way while they're in a monastery and that develops a very wholesome environment, a very safe, secure environment 
good environment for the development of meditation. But it's very attractive. That's one reason why we like to come to monasteries. It's peaceful. You can relax. You don't have to be uh, on your guard or suspicious, like say when you're at work, always worried other people are out to get your job or <laughs> damage your reputation. Um, even the animals appreciate it. If you live in a monastery, you notice, oh, here there's lots of birds. Maybe even more birds than outside. Why is that? Because oh, people don't harm the birds and the animals here. It's the same with our monastery in Melbourne. We have lots of animals come to live in the monastery, like deer and wombats and wallabies and kangaroos, because we don't harm them. But all of this requires some patience. I mean, when you come into a monastery, you might still have the desire sometimes to harm. Maybe just little creatures, usually it's insects, isn't it? You see a bug walking up your leg, an ant or something, and you might think of just clobbering it immediately. <laughs> but if you're keeping the precepts, you have to practice mindfulness and patience, and you have to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Even this little bug that's biting me or making me itch, I'll remove it or brush it away or even just ignore it. Let it walk up and maybe it'll just walk down again without any trouble. You learn how to do that in a monastery, how to be patient with the conditions, patient with other people. In a monastery we learn not to always uh, voice our disagreement. If you disagree with somebody else's opinion, well maybe you listen and you can discuss, but you don't have to make a big fight out of it or a big argument out of it. Uh, that takes patience. All the things you're doing in a monastery take patience. Practice of dana, practice of the precepts. And what's the result of that? Well the result of that is you're learning about yourself. You're learning how to see your own mind giving yourself the time, the space to do that, learning to see what is conducive to suffering and creates trouble for yourself and others, and also you're learning what is conducive to peace and happiness. If you're patient, you can start to see that, you can start to weed out your own, maybe you might say unskillful tendencies or negative tendencies. Just as we look after the gardens here, like the grounds are looking very nice, nice and clean and tidy. <coughs> That's because people put effort into weeding and cutting back the vegetation and preparing the paths and sweeping and cleaning and all of that. Your mind is just the same. If you want to have a peaceful mind, you've got to be willing to be patient and put the effort into weeding your mind. <laughs> what do you weed from it? Well, you weed what we call the negative tendencies. The Buddha's word is kilesa. We translate as uh, mental defilements or negative states of mind. All the things that cause us suffering are rooted in different kinds of craving, attachment, delusions. These are what we're weeding out through our practice. So if you come into a monastery, a place where it's peaceful, quiet, Everyone's trying to practice mindfulness, keep the precepts, helping out, doing dana. It's an ideal environment to see your own mind. You've got the time, you've got the space to see your mind, and then you'll see the weeds when they come up, just as like the gardens, when you keep your garden clean, any fresh weeds that come up, you'll see them popping up in the pathways or 
in different spots. You'll notice them straight away if you've been looking after your garden. Similarly, our minds, if you start practicing here, developing more mindfulness, more awareness, well, you'll see the weeds as they come up when you start to get angry or you're feeling depressed or bored, restless, or if you're meditating, just when you, if you might start falling asleep. Or if you have some greed come up, and you're not satisfied with what you got, you want something more or better. There's many different kinds of weeds we're dealing with, but the more patient you are and the more you start looking, well, you can see where the weeds are coming up and you can start to pull them out, give them up, let them go. The way you weed your mind is by recognizing the weed and then letting it go, meaning you're letting go of the negative state of mind after you've recognized it. Letting go we do in different ways. Sometimes it's just seeing the harm of a particular mood or mental state and you say, oh, this is suffering, it's causing suffering. I'm not going to think like this anymore. I'm not going to follow this anymore. Other times you have to work very hard to develop something better the opposite or something that's more wholesome, more skillful. A different kind of weeding, you might say that's uh, the weeding by planting something better than the weeds can't get established. Well, you do that with your mind. You, if you notice you're getting irritated, well, sometimes you have to consciously cultivate patience or more kindness, more compassion for yourself or others around you. And you have to work at it. It's not necessarily easy. Here the Buddha said the quality that's most useful is practice of mindfulness, learning to reflect back on yourself, being aware in the present moment of what you're doing, where you are, what's happening from moment to moment through your day. So This is probably the key to living in a monastery. You're making everything into a meditation by developing mindfulness in all your activities. Whether you're meditating, chanting, cooking, cleaning, walking here, walking there, even falling asleep at night, waking up in the morning. It's all part of mindfulness training. You make everything part of your practice that way and all the time you're reflecting back, looking back at your own mind to see what's going on. And you have to start recognizing what's there. And obviously the, the good things you can preserve, you look after them, just like you look after the flowers and the good plants you have in your garden. You don't have to do anything with them, you just preserve them, cultivate them and let them grow more. But the causes of suffering are those more negative mind states. When they start to come up, you have to start recognizing them and doing something about them. You might say this is the heart of Buddhist practice. It's the heart of... Um, the practice of what we call right view, samaditi, where you're recognizing what is wholesome karma and what is unwholesome karma or negative karma in your own mind, your own heart. You're learning to look, you're learning to develop your own ability to look back at yourself. Like a mirror, you have your own internal mirror looking back at, at yourself, your own mind, your own heart. And most of our time out there in the world, we sp when we look at a mirror, it's just to look at our external appearance, to see whether we look good or not, our hair, our clothes, our skin, and so on. But the Dhamma mirror you're developing, you know, it's, it's going much deeper than that. You're looking at your own state of mind to know whether it's 
wholesome, skillful, or not. And the more you develop that awareness, then the more you've got a chance to really improve things, change things for the better. With patience, with effort, obviously. And this is something we, we are all practicing and can practice while we're in the monastery, you're learning to develop more mindfulness. People always ask, they say, oh, how do you practice mindfulness? You know, how can you be mindful? Well, obviously, the best way is probably when we meditate, you start there, you're learning to be mindful of a meditation object. So it might be breathing meditation. So practicing mindfulness of the in and out breath, meaning being aware or knowing whether you're breathing in, you're breathing out. Usually you put your attention on one spot, like the tip of the nostril, or the chest, or the abdomen. And you keep paying attention to that one spot, and when you're mindful, well, you'll know the breath is going in, or the breath is going out. So you keep recalling the breath, recollecting the breath, and you use another quality, what we call sampajanya, clear comprehension, so you know the breath is going in, or it's going out, it's coarse, it's refined, it's long, it's short. A very good way to practice or develop mindfulness. But extending on from that, obviously you can be mindful of many other things. So say you're not sitting meditation, if you're walking, well you might be mindfully aware of your posture or the feet moving when you're walking meditation or when you're cleaning you become mindful of that activity you're cleaning the floor or cleaning a window or you're putting flowers in a vase or you're cooking a meal or you're talking to someone practice mindfulness of talking speaking mindful of what you're saying the intentions behind your words the motivations for speaking the kind of words you're using and so on. We make everything part of our mindfulness practice. But if you're ever in doubt, Ajahn Chah had a very good shorthand, just way of no, developing mindfulness. He just said, if you're ever not clear, just stop what you're doing. Ask yourself, what am I doing right now? And then answer yourself. So, you're sweeping leaves. Oh. What am I doing? I am sweeping leaves. You answer yourself. That brings mindfulness to the present moment in that activity. And clear comprehension. You clearly understand. Oh, I'm here sweeping leaves. And you'll notice that's, you know, it's the best antidote to the mind that's restless, always going on, off into other places, thinking about the future, plans, ambitions often caught up in the past, often the past it's a lot of regret, guilt, dissatisfaction with things that have happened in the past, or wishing things were back like they were in the past, and so on. Very often we're just not in the present moment at all. But the practice of mindfulness is about bringing the mind back to the present moment with full awareness, fully understanding what we're doing right now, to cut off those habits to go against them, train your mind to go against the habit of always in the future or in the past, <coughs> daydreaming, or if you're meditating, sitting down, often it's just sleepiness, working with sleepiness. You need mindfulness to go against that, that habit. So this is, much of our time in the monastery is, is about practicing this, developing mindfulness techniques in different ways, 
and then reflecting back the more mindfulness you have on the, your state of mind and learning you know, is it is this uh, skillful state of mind good one or not and having enough patience to deal with things and be with things you can't always change your mind straight away you have sometimes have to be very patient if the mind is very restless full of all kinds of moods opinions desires it's not always possible just to drop everything or let everything go straight away you have to work at it so while you're working at it you have to be patient with whatever's coming up sometimes it's just little ripples just a few kind of minor different states of mind popping up here and there sometimes it's like a very deep emotional state <laughs> a very uh, something very strong overwhelming emotional state that we have to deal with but still the aim is always to establish mindfulness reflect and then use wisdom to help let go right once you have established mindfulness, Ajahn Chah always said, oh, contemplate the impermanent nature of your own states of mind. This body, this mind, these are impermanent conditions. What does that mean? Well, notice, the more mindfulness you have, notice the way your different moods, your opinions, your views, your moods, your states of mind come and go. <coughs> feelings come and go. Sometimes we have uh, pleasant feelings, physical pleasure sometimes we have pain physical pain sometimes we have mental pleasure sometimes mental pain the more mindfulness we establish the more we can contemplate this and see oh yeah, this mind changes according to different causes and conditions my mood can change sometimes very fast you know, somebody says something you makes you feel happy straight away you're very happy the same person can say something you don't like and very immediately you become grumpy, upset. Sometimes it's our body. Our body is feeling nice, healthy and strong. Sometimes we feel ill or we have pain in the leg or the, uh, the back or something. Our experience is changing all the time whether we realize it or not. But as we start establishing mindfulness you do start to notice. Oh, thoughts very impermanent they come they go feelings come and go feelings of pleasure and pain come and go so Ajahn Chah just said you can use a mantra when you're reflecting on this just use the mantra it's not sure in Thai we say my it's not sure this is the heart of what you might call vipassana meditation but very very simple teaching that you can apply over and over again through your day not sure you know, you, the weather is not sure it's one moment it's sunny next moment it's cloudy and raining people are not sure one moment someone's here next moment they've gone somebody's happy now they're not happy our own mind is not sure one moment we're thinking about one thing, another moment thinking about something totally different and unrelated. One moment we feel good, another moment we feel not good. The one constant thing in all that can be this reflection, establishing mindfulness and reflecting, oh, it's not sure. And so you get you're more used to the not sureness of things, the uncertainty of things. 
And that gives you some real stability in amongst all the instability of life. If you become more used to reflecting on how things are impermanent, well then it grounds you in wisdom, the wisdom of the Buddha, the wisdom of Ajahn Chah. And then it becomes your own wisdom. You know, our body is changing all the time. Every day we wake up in the morning, we feel hungry, we feel tired, and we feel energized, we eat food. When we're rested we feel good, we have some pain, sometimes we feel hot, we feel cold. It's all uncertain, it's not sure. How our mind is, sometimes we feel very happy, sometimes not. Not sure. You keep reflecting back on this and you're becoming aware of the changing nature of our experience as human beings. Not sure. Things arise and they pass away. This is what grounds us, gives us a real refuge in wisdom, the wisdom of the Dhamma, wisdom of the Buddha. One who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. One who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. Like that monk in the time of the Buddha, so infatuated just with the physical appearance of the Buddha, because the Buddha was so pleasing to look at, very peaceful, just like our beautiful Buddha statue here, very peaceful, always his movements, always very graceful, looks so radiant, so peaceful. There's one monk who's just obsessed with looking at the Buddha and feeling very satisfied, oh, the Buddha looks so good. The Buddha had to point out, well, you know, the real Buddha is not this external form you're seeing. Because even the, even the Buddha gets old, one day the Buddha gets sick, one day the Buddha will die. The real Buddha is the wisdom that you develop, the mindfulness and the wisdom, the path of practice you develop in your heart. That's the real Buddha, because it brings you to see the Dhamma. And one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. So we all have the chance to see the Buddha and know the Buddha by doing this kind of practice. Developing the precepts, the practice of mindfulness, reflecting back on our own experience, both the body and the mind. Observing the, these truths in other people and the world around us as well. The world changes, people change, life changes. And then reflecting back to ourselves, our own Life is changing, our body is changing. In the end, it's the one thing that we can guarantee and that it's the same for all of us, wherever we're from, whichever country or background, whatever our gender, whatever our age, the one thing we can be sure of is that we're all subject to impermanence. And this body we've got here is aging, it's changing, it's getting older, one day we have, we've got to die. Nobody escapes that. Nobody is any different in that sense. You know, whoever you are, your background, doesn't affect that. We all have to get old, sick, and one day we'll die. So how are we going to face that? How are we going to deal with that skillfully? We're, we're good. It's our good fortune that the Buddha gave us the tools to deal with it skillfully, to come to understand that's the true nature of existence. Everything that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Whether it's a person, or a thought, or a feeling, a tree, a stream, this building, everything arises, passes away. Other than Nibbana, or the mind that recognizes the inherent nature of change in everything and it's freed itself from 
It's misunderstandings of truth and delusions and attachments, the things that cause us suffering. So maybe I'll leave you with these uh, few reflections tonight. Uh, if there's anything that's useful for you, uh, take it away and hopefully it can help you in your practice. Um, but like everything, the Dhamma talk is impermanent. It started, now it's stopping. <laughs> Uh, so I'll leave it there and just wish you all uh, success in your practice. Keep on practicing, be very patient with the practice and whatever difficulties you might encounter, don't let them put you off or get you down. Keep practicing, keep learning from your experience, trying to use the Dhamma teachings you've heard and apply them in your daily life. And also tomorrow, uh, give you uh, an anamodana, uh, express our appreciation for all your efforts that are coming together. And tomorrow there'll be the almsgiving ceremony. We wish you all success with that. Hopefully it's a cause for joy and happiness for you all, for the progress of this monastery and all the community of everybody, the Sangha and the laity who uh, live here and support the monastery. May it be a cause for your happiness and progress in the Dhamma. So I'll leave the talk there and wish you all well. <laughs>